thank you for joining us. Well, we have a wonderful topic, a wonderful guest that we cannot wait to get to. Um, every episode of FY, of course, brought to you by uh, Mongoose, makers of Cadence, Higher Ed's premier engagement platform. Mike, yes. what are we talking about today in today's episode, Representation in Tech with yes. Dr. Kashana Gray? Yes. Well, with the ubiquity of technology and the ascendance of esports and gaming on our campuses with our students, it's important that everyone has representation in those spaces. And there's probably no better experts on this topic and better voice than Dr. Kashana Gray from the University of Kentucky. So we're very excited to welcome her to today's episode. Dr. Gray, say hi to everyone and say a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. I had to, I, finding the mute button was a chore just for a second. Kishana Gray, Associate Professor at the University of Kentucky. Um, I'm in the program um, in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies, but also in African and African American Studies, um, and also Women and Gender Studies. I'm also in the Honors College. You know, I'm just in, in all those things. Like, sign me up. I'll join it all. Um, I've been in, at the University of Kentucky, you know, for a couple of years. And so, you know, my academic trajectory has been a very, very interesting one. Um, you know, I think, uh, especially for, you know, since this is like, you know, academic spaces, like a lot of times, you know, we're taught to, you know, ha you know, we, we grad, we get our PhDs and we get these jobs and then we stay there, we get tenure and then we, ha we live happily ever after. That's just not the reality. And I think like for me, I'm like, ah, I don't like it here. I want to go somewhere else. I don't like it here. I want to go somewhere else. That's like unheard of, like in academic spaces, but well, traditionally was unheard of but I think now more and more especially with all the you know the precarious employment you know the, yeah. the move to you know more adjuncting you know more part-time like folks then you know we have to pay our bills so we're like who's gonna pay me the most because that's where I'm gonna be at so that's how I got to the University of Kentucky if anybody's wondering um, why the University of Kentucky um and so I've been you know I'm really glad to see you know all these folks here I'm really glad and excited to share space with you all um I won't I, I can start y'all have to like stop me because I'll just start talking and just get to going um you know so I hope you all you know will check out a lot of my work you know I, I spend a lot of time in digital spaces and gaming spaces you know I love hearing the conversations that people have about you know the spaces that they occupy and especially with Twitter like there's so much happening you know like in Twitter alone you know so it's really just interesting to, to see you know the intersections you know with social media and digital media and especially with academic you know kind of conversations um I've been really like fascinated you know with how academics are talking about like you know the mass Exodus, you know, out of Twitter, you know, that you like going into Mastodon and be real, you know, all these other spaces. And then it's really, you know, just fascinating, you know, how all these conversations are kind of kind of percolating. So those are the things that keep me up at night. Those are the things that take up all my time. Um, and so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you all. Thank you. Thank you so much for 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 letting me be here. Boy, if there's time, I might ask you about Mastodon because I hear it's complicated, but I haven't had the time to even research yet. But that would take Maybe a completely different episode. Uh, speaking of paying the bills, um, your book, Intersectional Tech, is yes, on our yeah. shelf behind us. Um, that will be referenced in our conversation as yeah. well. So um, we'll make sure we cover that. So, Mike, what do I say at the beginning of every episode of FYI before we get into questions with our guest? We don't bury the lead. The problem with this episode is that there are a lot of leads. Yes. It's a very um, uh, uh, wide conversation. So yes. while uh, we can't bury the lead, we can only do one lead at a time. But sure. we do want to get into our questions. Again, populate your questions in the chat as we go. Mike, I want you to start off, though. Sure. So uh, I guess a good starting point is what does gaming indicate about our culture, particularly in terms of technology and higher education? You know, I think that game, it's a very good question. Thank you. I think that gaming says everything about our culture. We just don't know it, right? 
you know, because usually gaming is like just like that little that little thing over in the corner, you know, the thing that might go viral every now and again, you know, the thing that, you know, politicians might latch on to to be like, oh, my goodness, you know, games cause violence. Oh, my gosh. All these games are destroying our brains. Oh, my goodness. Mortal Kombat. That's so bad, you know. So like a lot of times that's ha- that's how like a lot of the conversations around gaming has gone. Right. Um, and I think that that's a huge um, it, it's it's a huge oversight. Uh, um, in relation to what gaming actually is. I gave a talk a few months ago at the Computer Human Interaction Conference. That might not be what it's called, but uh, it's CHI. Um, and I, I opened that talk by saying that gaming is the canary in the coal mine. I love coal mine references. I'm from Kentucky. I'm from coal country. So, you know, I love like the coal mine references, uh, the good ones. You know, I get mad when, you know, people, you know, talk junk about, you know, coal mines. Um, but um, I said that, that gaming is the canary in the coal mine. Um, because as I've looked, you know, I've been doing this for like more than a decade. You know, I completed, you know, my PhD in 2011. Um, and I have been doing research in gaming, you know, at least about five or six, you know, years like prior to that. And I was really fascinated and really interested in seeing just like the all the innovations and all the progressions that have been made, you know, within um, within a lot of these spaces. But I noticed like a conversation that I like to t- talk about now. In 2010, uh, Microsoft deployed the Connect. So the Connect is like the little camera looking thing. I feel like I probably had one, but it's like the camera that sat on top of your TV. And it's like, I think the, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, And I even think, I think Jimmy Kimmel may have talked about it or one of those night night show guys, but they said, you know, your body becomes the controller. Mm -hmm. And there were all these fascinating, you know, like stories about how, you know, awesome and innovative this was, right? So I bought a couple. Um, I bought a few and brought them into to my gaming lab. I was like, let's do this. Let's play. You know, so the IT folks, you know, they they set it up and they're like, you know, Kishana, it's good to go. So during that time, I had a summer school class. So, you know, for those of us in the academic institutions, you know, the, the, the students that take summer classes are the ones that can afford it. So a lot of times it's our scholarship mm-hmm. students and a lot of times it's our student athletes, right? You know, so some of our summer classes are really occupied by, you know, the folks who, you know, are able to pay. And so during that time, it was student athletes. It was mostly black bodies that were there. It was the football team, you know, it, the football team was in my class. And so I was like, oh, this would be a wonderful opportunity. You know, I can engage them in a lot of this content, you know, engage them with, you know, because I also use gaming to talk about, you know, kind of like, you know, tough, controversial topics, if you will. They're not tough or controversial for me, but for some people, it might be, you know, talk about like race and gender and sexuality and, you know, um, settler colonialism. You know, we can talk about all the, everything that you need to talk about, you can talk about, it, you know, from games. But anyway, I brought the, I brought them in. Um, we did the connect and it wasn't working. And I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Why is it not working? Because IT had just tested everything and it was working perfectly. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, I probably, I know what this is. I know what's happening. But I didn't want to say it to those kids that were in there, right? I didn't want to say this, a racism was happening, that this, this system, you know, could not see you because your skin's too dark. I didn't want to say that to them. And so I was like, well, we'll troubleshoot this and, you know, we'll come back to it later. So after that, I started scouring the, you know, the internet to try to find all the articles that were like written about the connect. And if you connect, if you Google right now, you can Google connect, K-I-N-E-C-T. Somebody put that in the, in the chat for me so that so folks can know the word that I'm saying. Um, so if you look up connect, racist like you'll see all these articles that pop up right and so basically what people were saying is that everybody anybody that was like darker skin you know it was having trouble reading them but they put out a a, uh there's also an article that you're going to find that said you know the connect's not racist after all you know you all just have poor lighting they they put it on the user you know the user had to bear the burden of the technology that was flawed right 
And so I brought this up at this conference at Kai, and I had somebody that was there, somebody that claimed that they worked on the Connect. I don't think so. They they were just upset by what I was saying. But you know, this person was like, you know, Kashana, you know, technology is not racist. You know, um, in fact, I was there when we were testing the Connect, and the Connect actually it read very well. It did, you know, it's, it's they said all these great things, but they said, but people who had like dark clothes on, it didn't render, you know, the body parts where you had dark clothes on. You know, so I'm just even thinking about like you, Mike, it wouldn't read your top because it's probably too dark you know it, it wouldn't Colby it wouldn't read yours it wouldn't read any of them it wouldn't read my sweater right and wow. so I was like you realize you just confirmed what I have been saying for like a decade that it's racist well no it's not racist just because it can't read darker things I'm like sir that's like textbook definition like sir I don't know what's not connecting like in your gray matter but in fact that is the actual definition. It's not able to see dark things. But in his mind, he was like, well, these, you know, white bodies had darker clothes on. So it's not racist because it couldn't see them. But I was like, you're still, therein still lies the problem that you all didn't care. You noticed that this was an issue, but you didn't bother yourselves like to fix it. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I've built my entire platform on, you know, the things that technology ignores and just overlooks, you know, they're like, well, if it's just going to be a problem for a small, you know, subset of people, then we don't really care about it. You know, because we can enjoy it and we can we're going to play and interact with this thing. We don't care about that small population of people that can't. And I think that's what really like propelled, you know, my um, my my um, my agenda, you know, my, my research agenda. Mm-hmm. So the connect was the one thing. I, I also want to make sure whenever I hear you say, hmm, Mike, is that you want to interject there? You no, want to no, I find this questions. fascinating. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Please. But you can you can cut me off anytime because I'll just keep no, going and going sure. and going. You can stop me. I'm thinking about the mask. One of my favorite movies. Somebody stop me. Okay. There was another <laughs> example. You know, so but the connect is like that precursor, right? When we think about that recognition technology, you know, we think I'm I'm just thinking about like in 2016. Or 2017, you know, there was Project Greenlight in Detroit that got deployed. But, you know, the cameras, you know, wasn't able to, to discern, you know, different kinds of faces. You know, it couldn't tell, you know, Jamal from Tyrone. And that was in 2016. Now, in my mind, I'm like, how I sounded alarms let folks know this was a problem, but because the tech world had dismissed it, then they continue to progress and develop this technology. And then we have these problems now. I'm even thinking about like in, in London, didn't they have like the, the police, you know, had like the, 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 the AI, you know, cameras, you know, like deployed, I think encoded bias, you know, we learned a lot of it in that documentary coded bias, you know, of where it, you know, and I think the majority of the captures that these, these cameras did, it wasn't recognizing, you know, people's faces. It, it was mostly wrong. And I'm like, I could have told you in 2010 that it was going to be mostly wrong um but that was just like one example of like many of where if we paid attention more to like gaming you know because these are the innovative people you know these the the space is so small you know they can be cutting edge and innovative but i'm like we should have paid a little more attention you know i should have sounded some more alarms you know during that time because then maybe we would have addressed these things that we're trying to like fix right now i'll stop there i know i'm doing a lot of talking boy i mean uh already four lessons that we can draw upon and um (laughs) And I'll, uh, I'll bring them up. You talked about gaming being the canary in the coal mine. It's the fish that has not yet evolved as well in that mm-hmm. example, because there are lessons and uh, experiences in which things can get better and um, uh, thrive, I guess. So let's take this back to the higher ed industry. Our audience is here today. And I talked about lessons learned, and you certainly can pull lessons from the, the gaming industry and the topics that we're talking about today on your campus. And I would ask you, uh, Dr. Gray, 
Um, uh, everyone in our audience is not a gamer. Some are not even indirectly involved with gaming. So why would this conversation matter to them? And I know you've already given plenty of examples and thought process on that, but I wasn't prepared for you to answer my question before I asked it. So <laughs> hopefully okay. you have more examples than that. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right. Um, I think there are several reasons why people should pay attention to what's happening in the gaming space. First off, if you care about entertainment, it's the number one entertainment outlet that we have. More wow. people play games than they do, like then they go to movies and, inter and, and music and concerts. More people are playing games, right? And I think also the problem is, is that we've defined gaming so narrowly, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're like, okay, gaming is like this small, you know, a small subset of the population are engaged in this hardcore gaming where they're engaged in these shooters and doing these fantastic, you know, tournaments called esports, right? I think a lot of people are like, well, if I'm not doing that, then I can't be a gamer. I must not be a gamer. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true, right? You know, because I would love to see, you know, just a show of digital virtual hands, you know, the number of gamers that are in the room. Please feel free. I would love to see you all, like, just do the reaction, just like raise your hand or interact like in some way to let me know the amount of gamers that are here. Just I, I gamed, I do not online game. And, it, you know, it's, you know, it's a scary world out there. And yes. more from my standpoint of like, I grew up, my nickname was Segury. My games were 8-bit, so I can't compete now. I just don't have the time. So, But but that's okay, because I noticed that most people did not interact. They didn't raise their hands. But whenever I ask this other question, like I ask, you know, how many of you have played Candy Crush? Hands go up. Farmville, Diner Dash. All of us have interacted in the mobile games in some way. That's gaming. But I don't know why, because, you know, we don't consider, you know, casual gaming like a serious space, then we dismiss it and diminish it. So I really urge us, you know, we have to think about gaming broadly because we don't want that extreme, that extreme population of people to dictate what gaming means because they're not, they're not telling a great story, right? I think there was just an article just a couple, a couple days ago that said, you know, yeah, yeah, it's true we can confirm that the majority of gamers are racist and sexist i'm like okay yeah we know but that's not everybody that's just this popular small sub you know this toxic population that gets all the focus and they shouldn't be telling the story of what gaming is and what gaming could be um and i think that another reason let me get let me stick stick to your question greg you know another reason that we need to pay attention to it first off you know it's a multi-billion dollar industry most of us are gamers because we've all download we've all played some kind of game you know through like the facebook app or you know, some other kind of thing. We've all played games, right? But also, um, I'm thinking about, we can talk even like about children's engagement, like with gaming. Most parents, most guardians, most adults have no idea about the world of gaming that their kids are occupying and we need to pay more attention to it, right? Not pay attention because, you know, you know, like, like scary, awful things are happening. Like, oh my gosh, my kids are getting groomed in Fortnite. No, no, I don't mean anything like that, right? Um, but what I mean is that, um, you know, whenever I talk to like parents, they diminish gaming, they diminish the importance of it because they don't understand it. And I think for most people, there's some, you know, I think they're insecure about their lack of ability and knowledge about a thing. So if they don't understand it, then they'll be like, oh, you're just wasting your time on that because we didn't do that. I remember there was a conversation I had with this one dad one day, right? He said, he said, I can't understand why my son just sits there and looks at YouTube all day. There, he was watching some people play. I think it was Fortnite. You're watching, watching these, these people play Fortnite on YouTube. Now, why, we, why would he just sit there and do that? Now, 
I had a little knowledge about dad because I've been talking to mom because mom was trying to be like, you know, mom was like, can you help us? Can you help my dad? So I know that what dad does on Sundays, dad's sitting in his chair watching the Buffalo Bills play football all day long. Shout out to Buffalo Bills. Listen, I'm bringing love to Buffalo. (laughs) But I asked him, I was like, well, sir, you know, in your free time, you know, what do you do when you come home from work? You know, what are you, what are you doing? You know, he says, you know, I I said that he, he called off like the shows that he watches like, like in the evenings and like some of the podcasts and stuff that he listens to. Um, and so, but I was like, well, sir, you're sitting there and listening to something you're sitting there and you're watching the game, you know, you're watching football. Like there's no difference between you sitting there and watching Monday night football compared to your son, you know, on, on YouTube, he sat there and he paused real quick, right? Cause it hit him, it hit him. And he was like, because he didn't make those kinds of connections, but he had diminished and devalued, you know, these activities. Um, but I also think he diminished and devalued it because, he wanted that time with his children. He wanted to spend time with his kids and they just couldn't figure out a way to find that where, where, where they, where they cross it. They couldn't find their intersection. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, how about you just, I introduced them to like Madden. We turned Madden on. He didn't know it was the game. He thought it was like an actual game. Like, sir, that's, that's on PlayStation. So that's not a real thing at all like this. And he was like fascinated. And so the kid was like, I could show you that dad. And then here they had like a connection. Right. And I think a lot of people, they just don't know where to start the conversation. And so they just, you know, stay in those insecurities and those, that, that uncertain space when we, we, we can figure out and find ways to to find, to find the commonality. So that's another reason why people should pay attention to gaming. So that's about three. I can give you more if you need more. No, I mean, the higher ed industry, always looking for ways to increase revenue and increase in and things like that. If you look into e-gaming, if you were in this space today to learn more about it, uh, I, uh, we're going to tell you um, things to avoid and things to think about when, you know, considering gaming and, you know, things the way to um, increase belonging with your students to make sure that safe spaces are developed for everyone. But um, $32 billion was the number that uh, uh, Dr. Gray mentioned. Wow. Um, and students have that as something they like to do. If there's something on your campus that involves gaming, that's a great way to reach out. It's a great way to team build for professional skills and it's happening on campuses um, uh, all across the country. Absolutely. One thing that I wanted to, if I could, if this is okay. Um, first, I wanted to shout out uh, the an example that Candace Floyd just provided, like with Wordle. Everybody does that, right? That's a game. Like we all play that. We all do that. We all interact and engage with that, but we just don't take that seriously as a space. But some, but something I, I wanted to like bring up. So I hosted um, a summer a summer camp. I called it Camp Kiki. Of course, I named it after me. I'm an Aries. Forgive me. I'm sorry. But I named it Camp Kiki. And so you know, we were engaging middle school kids. Um, two parts we wanted to engage kids around like gaming and like esports but we wanted to also like translate that that you know for parents and for them so they could see what could they do academically with that and what could they do like in the industry and like you know for work and career preparation right and so what I found what was so important is that because a lot of these kids also they didn't feel like they had like a skill set like around computer science and engineering and I know a lot of times those are like the academic disciplines that that kind of dominate the conversation like around gaming and I'm like you know you can give me any discipline and I can show you how gaming resonates with that space, right? You know, so there were like folks that were like, okay, well, English. I'm like, 
say less. Think about like narratives. Think about, you know, like telling like stories. Think about like all of the co- the coolest stories that folks like love in games. It came from, you know, probably like an old English lit book, you know, like Beowulf or Oedipus, like all that stuff, like all those stories like are, are being told like in games right now, just some variation of it, right? Because there's nothing new under the sun. And a lot of it, you know, comes to us from, from like literature and literary, you know, kinds of concerns. History, that was another example. You know, I whenever I, um, I, I teach, um, there was, there was a, a teacher that was wanting to, to find a way to teach like slavery. And, you know, she didn't really know how to do it, especially with all the attacks on like critical race theory and all that kind of stuff. And so she was like, I'm just trying to figure out a way to do it so I don't get fired, so I can keep my job, but I want students to be engaged. I want this to matter to students. And so, you know, we gave her like a little brief like curriculum of like different kinds of games. Now, although there aren't that many like, you know, um, there aren't that many like slave narratives inside games, we gave her the example of Assassin's Creed, mm-hmm. um, Freedom Cry, you know, which basically was the precursor to the Haitian Revolution. And that was like, you know, a really, really powerful way, you know, like to tell the story, you know, but to also show like empowered Black bodies and Black people, you know, doing the, having agency, you know, and, and so it's just not, you know, so we're not just telling like the story of the colonizer and conquest, you know, so it was a really powerful, you know, kind of way to like engage. But there are all kinds of like ways to talk about, to, to use gaming, to kind of introduce and teach different kinds of academic disciplines. And so that's where I was really, really excited about the camp and getting those kids excited um, because I was also one of those kids. I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at science, but I wanted to be in the tech world. And so the humanities was my route. And, you know, so here I am, you know, you got my book is sitting on your shelf, you know, so there's a way to just get there from all from all kinds of pathways. You know, we don't have to do that hardcore coding and programming, you know, especially if it's not our skill set and if we if we can't do it. So I just want to make sure students feel empowered around that. That's fantastic. Yes. So you've used the example of Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. Are there any other games or series you can think of that are, or technology that are good examples of um, successfully creating a sense of identity belonging? Yes. Thank you for asking that. One of the things that I love to do, so I know a lot of times like within, within gaming, you know, we talk about like the content in gaming. But one of the things that I also love doing, and I'll be doing it. Oh, let me shout out something amazing that happened to me. I got a Mellon Grant. Um, and so Mellon Grant, you know, for the folks who are in, in humanities, you know, like that's like a pretty big deal, you know. So we got got this Mellon Grant. But what I'm going to be doing, like with this Mellon Grant, is to like equip people, community members, and young folks, you know, with like skill sets to be able to, to create their own narratives, like in gaming. Mm-hmm. So I know, like a lot of times, you know, we talk about like representation, like a whole lot, and we talk about, you know, our our stories being told adequately are they really reflective of like our different populations or in different aspects of like our identities um and then a lot of times you know i just want people to like feel uh, empowered enough to be able to tell their stories themselves now i got i got excited about this project it, it was it was actually kind of a sad thing that happened but i spent a lot of years in chicago i was at the university of illinois at chicago and Ch- the city of chicago is a place that hosts the um the pokemon go fest Type that in there for me, uh, Mike, if you can. Sure. Somebody can type the yeah. Pokemon Pokemon Go. So this is another game. That's okay if you don't don't know this game. You don't have to know it. Um, so it preloaded into Google and Mike started typing it. He's all oh, about Pokemon Go. All right, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so Pokemon Go is especially for the if there are any geographers like among us. This is like a geolocation like service. Yes, Greg. Yes, I love it. I love it. So it's like a geolocation based game where like you just use your phone you download the app and then you you follow 
the, the pokey. So it tells you where to go, right? And you're just going and then you push a lot of buttons. I don't really know much about it. These kids, the, my Camp Kiki uh, uh, students were kind of like introducing it to me. But anyway, when I was in Chicago, you know, there was a group of young folks that were like, we're really excited, you know, about the release of this game. We're going to go to the Pokemon Fest. We want to be immersed in this community. I was like, well, can I tag along with you? Now, these are kids that were from, our, from the south side of Chicago. They're from the neighborhood, um, Inglewood. And I was really excited to be able to, you know, see what they do with games, like, because they're the experts. They're the ones that just give me, give us like a glimpse into their lives. But I'm not an expert in these spaces. You know, these folks have really, um, you know, I love that so many folks like allow me into their communities and their spaces so I can help make what they do legible to an academic audience, right? I'm just like a bridge. I'm a facilitator, right? You know, I'm not the expert here. And so I was like, hey, can you all introduce me to this world of like Pokemon Go, right? You know, so we, you know, so I, I was there. I was waiting for them to come. They never showed. So I got messages from them. I checked my phone. I got messages. They said, uh, they said, Dr. Gray, we're not able to get in. I was like, wait a minute. Why not? They said, well, I think it was too many of us. I was like, what do you mean too many of you? And they were like, and they didn't really know how to articulate it at this point. I'm like, man, like, what are you talking about? These are, this is like, and this is pre-COVID. So it's like just a bunch of folks, like it's people everywhere. Um, but when I, when I understood, he didn't say this, you know, the kid didn't say this. He didn't know how to articulate it. But there's like, um, there's a negative optic, you know, to seeing like a group of black kids in the city of Chicago in most, in most spaces, right? And so there was like this fear of like, okay, if there are all these black boys here, then they must be up to no good. And so I was mad. I went and popped off on the security team. I'm like, these are my students. You know, y'all always think it's them. So I popped off. I was like, you know what? Forget them. Forget this festival. We don't need them. Because in my mind, what I thought is that we can do Pokemon Go anywhere. I'm like, all we need is a cell phone and an internet connection, right? Or some wireless connections and broadband or something. I was like, we can do this anywhere so I was like well y'all going down to the library because we would meet up at the library and I was like well I'll just meet y'all down there and we'll just walk around you know the neighborhood you know there in Inglewood and we'll do Pokemon Go down there so we got there <sighs> we could not do Pokemon Go I wish I should have had a few slides here because the visual the, the optic of it is just so jarring so if you were to think about like a map that's just like populated with a lot of stuff, that's what the Pokemon Go Fest, that's what it looked like on the north side of Chicago. But when we went down to the south side, there were no Pokemon Go stops. There were there was nothing that we could interact with on the interface of that game in our phones. And I was like, this is a mistake. Surely, surely this isn't right. So we went out and we walked around. Um, I also want to make sure I shout out... Um, there's this group in uh, the south side of Chicago called Mask, Mothers and Men Against Senseless Killing. And, you know, they're aware of like, you know, the harms and the dangers that often befall, you know, like a lot of our, a lot of our youth, you know, a lot of our folks like in, in South South Chicago. So basically what they would have, they had like checkpoint, checkpoints like on each corners and they would just like ensure that like kids could like walk from their house to like the corner store or walk to like the library or walk to like the bus stop. And that they were like, you know, they're, these are like black men and women that were looking at the kids and making sure that they could. So basically they were the, inf they were the physical infrastructure, right, to allow us to be able to walk walk around like the neighborhood, you know, these were just, you know, folks who were just occupying like corners. And I thought that was so fascinating. And I, I had to write about that. Because when we think about when we think about infrastructures, you know, I think we all, all often only talk about like the internet, you know, we never talk about like the people behind it. You know, we also, we don't even talk about like the buildings, like the, the public library was just such a huge benefit for all of us. Like we wouldn't have been able to do any of this without the public library. So when we think about like, you know, digital technologies and different spaces, like we still have to think about brick and mortar. We still have to think about the human body 
bodies that are behind to facilitate like a lot of this. But anyway, whenever I was, so um, there was, um, since there weren't any, I contacted Niantic, you know, the company that does Pokemon Go. And I'm like, I think y'all forgot to load the maps on the south side of Chicago. And they said, well, actually, we're sorry about that. But if you want like a stop, there's like a process. There's some steps that you have to take in order to get Pokemon Go stops like in, in your area, right? And so she sent me the link and I looked at it. And so there were like, there's like a big three. So the neighborhood has to first be, um, thank you, Greg. Thank you for, for putting like some, some images up there so people can get a sense of what it looks like. Thank you for that. Um, so it has to be an, air, uh, an area of like some kind of significance or like a landmark. I'm like, okay, that's fine. In my mind, that's easy. Like all the beautiful black history on the South side of Chicago, you know, from, I'm thinking about the great black migration from the South to the North, you know, you had hangovers from like the Chitlin circuit, you know, you had, you know, all this beautiful music from the Mississippi Delta, you know, you have all this, all this music culture, you have food culture, you know, you have all these great firsts, you know, you even, I know we don't talk about like, you know, the Chicago Renaissance, you know, cause we, you know, of course Harlem Renaissance was its thing, but there were some beautiful things happening culturally and around the arts. So I'm like, say less we got plenty to talk about like with black folks in Chicago right and so the second one was um you know, it has to be, there has to be sad, sidewalks, you know, because they're concerned about safety and like people getting back and forth. I'm like, okay, yeah, we got sidewalks, you know, it's a city, of course. The third one, and this was the one that was a little bit more subjective. They said it has to be an area that's deemed safe, right? And so who's most of us- the, Who's doing the demon? Right. Demon. That, that, yeah. Thank you, right? That, that Right? And so that was my question. And I think they just look at um, crime reports. They look at hotspot maps. And so, of course, what we know about, you know, like the south side of Chicago, you know, there, there's a lot of crime. You know, when you think about like concentrated like pockets of crime, you know, it's it's there. Right. You know, so I don't I don't want to ignore that, you know, the, the real the reality of, you know, like uh, some of the violence and some of the crime that happens there. And so because of that, they were thinking that, OK, there's nothing that you can do. So in my mind, I'm like, you know what? We don't need Pokemon Go. We don't need Niantic. You know, we can do our own thing, right? And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, what is this interface? So here, you know, whenever I think about like what, what what the Pokemon Go app looks like, I'm like, that's nothing but augmented reality, right? I'm like, we can do that on Snapchat. We can do that on TikTok. We have all these tools of where we can just really like do our own thing and like populate it. So the first thing that 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 we did with these young folks, I was like, let's just go to the library. You know, I really want kids like to be engaged with librarians and information, especially to combat disinformation, fake news, misinformation. I'm really wanting, you know, to teach young folks how to be able to to to, to ascertain, you know, information and what, you know, what's credible, you know, and, and everything. So we spend a lot of time in the libraries just looking at databases, you know, reading the books, looking through archives, trying to find everything. Now these kids found out that the first Sears, that the first Sears store like in Chicago was in their neighborhood, you know, like, you know, so they found out like all these kinds of like cool kinds of things, um, you know, and then, then COVID hit and it shut the project down. And then I moved to Kentucky, but we're trying to rebuild it, you know, because, you know, Chicago, when I think about the South side of Chicago, um, especially with the work that I've done in Eastern Kentucky, you know, especially, you know, these are a bunch of poor white folks, you know, down here, but these are all geographically isolated areas of where people have ignored, you know, there's just like so much like neglect and oversight, you know, because even like in Eastern Kentucky, you know, just like in, you know, South side of Chicago, you know, the broadband's not there, the Wi-Fi's not there, internet's not there, like the digital infrastructures just don't exist. And so I want to make sure that, you know, we, we, I use these stories so I can make connections and so we can do something about all that. Let me shut up because I know I've been talking. 
I've been talking a whole lot. I need some water. Okay, give me yes. another question. I'm so sorry. Well, enjoy the water for yeah. a moment. Uh, we have a lot of great conversation in the chat. So uh, please, um, you know, send in those notes. But um, Colby, I think if you can check for me, I believe there's a question from Christine um, that I really liked. And uh, we can talk about student interactions. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Really great uh, question here from Christine. And that question is, are there lessons that we can learn slash borrow from the type of gaming engagement for our, can we use that for our student interactions? My bad, I'm so, so sorry. I was chatting, I was looking at the chat. I want no, you to- you were, you were supposed you said, to Kobe. wait for Colby to ask yes. the questions. We, we laid this all down. You're doing yes. great. <laughs> Ask me that again, Kobe. I want to shout out uh, Jahan Johnson. Johnson is here. Jahan is one of my students from the UC Irvine. You know, she's doing like working gaming. So I just wanted to shout her out. Hey, Jahan. Okay, Kobe, ask, ask me that again. I'm so sorry. Of course. No, it's so lovely to see one of your students in the chat. That's lovely. Um, The question was uh, from Christine Beardall. Um, are there any lessons that we can learn slash borrow from the type of gaming engagement that you guys do that um, that you've been talking about? Absolutely. And I, I think first, you know, because because it could be real easy to just, you know, to throw gaming into the mix of what you're doing. Right. I really want folks to sit back and think about, you know, all the beautiful things that they're doing, all the beautiful pedagogy and all the wonderful like approaches, because sometimes like, you know, games shouldn't be replacing any of that right? The technology shouldn't be replacing any of that. These things are like enhancers. These are things that just supplement what's already there, right? And so I would really like implore you to think about, you know, are there some areas where we could use some extra enrichment around? Like if you have like some students, maybe, especially like in like the K through 12, like can I, or if there are some students who are like struggling, like in math or, you know, some kind of topic, there are cool games that you could bring in, you know, to kind of, you know, kind of offset maybe some of like where their learning struggles or anything. So I want to make sure that folks like look at gaming as something that just enhances like what you're already doing. I started to use games, you know, because my first tenure track job was at Eastern Kentucky University. Lovely place, lovely humans, but there were some struggles around, around things that I taught. So, you know, I'm, you know, I teach race, I teach gender, I teach sexuality, and I teach, you know, ability and disability, you know, I teach these kinds of things. Um, and there were some challenges there and some challenges for me in this body that I'm in. You know, I'm a black woman. Um, and so I realized for me to be safe in the classroom too, I had to incorporate like some proxies, right? You know, I had to be able to be like, well, I didn't say this, you know, Tennessee Coates said that, you know, I didn't say this, Brittany Cooper said, you know, so I had to like distance myself because anything that I was teaching about, you know, they automatically said, you know, Dr. Gray, you know, she hates white men. She hates, I'm like, oh my gosh, I do not. Oh my gosh, please don't say that. You know, so I had to really get innovative and gaming was the thing that allowed me to continue to, you know, to have these conversations, but I could distance myself for safety, right? I could distance myself, you know, to ensure that my evaluations were still there, you know, because I needed during that time I had to, had to get tenure, you know, so I, I had to incorporate that. So the game that I started using um, to talk about like things related to like race and gender. Oh, and this was also, I think we were trying to like teach like um, policing, like police brutality and stuff. And so some of those students were like, nah, that ain't real. That ain't real. And mind you, this was like before 2014. So this was before, you know, a lot of the movements for black lives, you know, this was like before Ferguson and stuff, you know, so at least we had that, we could latch onto those kinds of things and those examples. But this was in 2011, in 2010, 2011, where I'm trying to teach these things and let folks know this stuff. So I use Grand Theft Auto. Now, Grand Theft Auto, there was a really interesting thing that Grand Theft Auto did, right? 
I don't know what they did, but they set they set the sensitive police sensitivity bar all the way up because there was a time that if you're if you're playing yes Betty absolutely and there was a time whenever you're playing like the black character and if you go around the police then they are immediately heightened heightened and aware like you get like a one star for just walking near the police and to me I thought that was such a fascinating thing to tell and to talk about in the class right and so you know it made us have to have to engage, you know, especially during that time, you know, New York was still, you know, stop and frisk was a huge thing, right, in New York, you know, before they deemed it unconstitutional or whatever they did, right? But, you know, it, and I had to, I had to have the students, like, engage, like, why do you think that there's, like, immediate suspicion, you know, when this Black character is, like, going around them? And, you know, the students, like, had to, like, confront they had to confront their biases, implicit biases and their unconscious biases around, you know, like being blackness immediately equates criminality, right? They had to unpack that. You know, there was no way that you couldn't because I made them have to, have to answer the question. Like why here, also the really interesting thing about it was because they were occupying the body of blackness. You know, so here I had, you know, I had white students who were playing a black character. So they had to internalize it and they wouldn't want that happening to them. So it really, really allowed us to have really meaningful kinds of deep conversations about some things that were happening, you know, especially around like policing and like the treatment of black folks, stop and frisk. Um, and, and that was like the precursor, you know, um, you know, to, to like a lot of the stuff that I did. So I wanted to find more examples, um, you know, so we could, we could have like these conversations. But also, also in Grand Theft Auto, I'm just thinking about the hypersexualization of women, the violence against women, you know, so there are all these kinds of conversations that we have, you know, women don't have agency in this game, you know, and for the majority of the women that were in like Grand Theft Auto, like I had the students, I was like, go around, let's ride around the city and tell me when you can find a woman. All the examples of, of the women that they found, they were sex workers, you know, they were street walkers, you know, these were, these were women who were, you know, identified as like prostitutes, like in, inside the game. And I was like, well, what is that telling you that you don't have any meaningful like relationships or connections with women? And then women, you just use them for their bodies and their sexual services, because if you engage in their sexual services, they, they increase your health. So that's like what a lot of folks do. Like if you get shot in GTA, you know, your health is down, you can go acquire the services of a sex worker, you know, to boost your health. And so I'm like, you know, what, what is it saying about, you know, what we think about like women, you know, inside like this game, you know, there's nothing wrong with sex work. I, I don't, I, that's not, that's not what I'm, I don't want people to think that like I'm bashing like sex work at all. But the fact that that's the only role that a woman has inside the game, like it creates like that limited narrative about what it means like to be a woman inside the game. Um, I'll stop also there. Go ahead. No, no, ahead, it's Greg. conversations. And I think the most um, interesting thing about your book um, was in your, uh, at the point of the book, it was 10 years of research. I know it's much more than that now. Um, the conversations you were having with uh, gamers and um, the the lessons that can be learned from that are the, the listening that can not only be um, involved in gaming, but also in just digital spaces. You talk a lot about spaces and places, and I love them um, because you have to start to think about those as actual structures and then digital spaces. But the listening was a big part of that. And there are actual conversations that arose while game was being played, that um, you would kind of pick their brains on things and their perspective on things. And it was super interesting. And I think that's a lesson that can be learned by institutions. When you want to know what your students are thinking, be in the places that they are in order to, you know, understand what they're talking about. Oh my gosh. It's so, it's so interesting that you said that right well, now. Well, it was your book. So you get all the yes. credit for that. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that. But I'm also just thinking, you know, I'm at the University of Kentucky. 
Now, if you didn't know, you know, we're pretty good at basketball, right? Most people know that, but I know we've recently gone viral with an unfortunate incident that happened between like our students, you know, on campus, right? And I think, you know, in re and listening to like the students right now, you know, they felt like that the institution did not hear them, hasn't, hasn't been listening to them like actively, you know, because if they were listening, then they would have told, you know, they, they've been trying to tell them, hey, these things are happening. But I think, you know, for a lot of our institutions, a lot of them are very reactionary, right? We only react when something's gone viral or when it makes the news and then we have to like react. But I think that that's one of, that's the core of my methodology, right? You know, do ethnography, you know, you can call it like a feminist ethnography or intersectional ethnography if you want, but, but because it is intersectional, like at the core of that, you know, you have to listen and hear people um, like tell their stories, hear where they're coming from, hear their perspectives. Um, so I know whenever I was doing like a lot of the early work, there were, I had a, a quantitative, you know, scholar that was like on my committee at the time, you know, and he was really big about making sure, you know, I had, you know, questionnaire and structured questions and, you know, that, and I was like, well, this, wouldn't this stifle like the conversation, and I'm still learning all these things myself, and I'm like, wouldn't this stifle the conversation, and he was like, well, in order to have like rigor and validity, you know, he threw all this science stuff, you know, all this research method stuff at me. And I was like, but, but in my mind, I just wanted to keep it open and broad. Well, first off, I was like, well, I just want to develop a relationship with them first. The, the questions can come later, right? And he was like, no, 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 you got to ask now. And so I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. But I also knew that I wasn't going to be a quantitative scholar because that's not how I, I wanted to approach things. So, you know, the core, like, like you just said, Greg, you know, I wanted to hear what people were saying. I wanted them to be able to have space to tell their stories. And I wanted to figure out a way to make sure that make those stories like legible, you know, like, to, to, like I said earlier, you know, to like an academic audience. And I found that that was actually one of the hardest things to do. Let me tell you why. So I've been, like I said, I have been doing this like, you know, for over, over like a decade, you know, just getting all these stories, all these narratives, people were sharing and telling all these things that were happening, right? And so if I could have really created like a visual that could, you know, account, it would have been, it would be like a 3D, 4D, 5D kind of like entity that, you know, traverse physical and digital spaces, you know, just even, you know, I met some folks over Skype. You know, people don't even know what Skype is. I said Skype the other day. Like, how did Skype not win the Zoom wars? Like, Skype was prime to be on on track to be the winner here, but we're on Zoom. How did that happen? Anyway. Video okay. video embedded capabilities, I think. that That's how they lost out. So <laughs> Zoom just did a better job of the tech. They did. I was rooting for <laughs> Skype. I was rooting for them. But anyway, so, you know, I would do, like, a lot of the interviews, you know, you know, on, um, you know, using Skype during those days. We would meet physically. We would talk. We would meet in the game space you know so just that movement inside and out of like physical and digital spaces was really dynamic but even just how their stories would evolve like over time like if I had just did like a one-stop interview questionnaire I would have had a snapshot like you know I, I'm not I'm not you know diminishing or devaluing surveys like at all I don't want you know my quantitative scholars in here to think that I am because that's not what I'm doing but I know if I would have just did that survey at that one point in time in their lives I wouldn't have been able to get that dynamic story of that of what their realities inside gaming was right you know so here I started there because I had to do something for my dissertation I was like all right well let me just write that up there's one story but I was so intrigued and it was so compelling I was like I have to stay in this space I need to know more right mm -hmm. and so that's why 
I continued, you know, with this long, with this longitudinal, you know, kind of like study and analysis, you know, I wanted to see how they engaged like with gaming over time. And what I saw is that, you know, for a lot of women, a lot of women were like, you know, this space is just so untenable. I don't want to be here anymore. So there was like a mass exodus of like women out of the space. You know, there were like some folks of color that are like, you know, these spaces are never going to do anything about the toxicity in the space. They're never mm-hmm. going to do anything about harassment and racism. So I'm leaving, right? You know, and then, you know, I, I understood that. And then there were some folks that were just like, we don't care what they're doing. We have created these beautiful communities here and we're going to say we're not going anywhere. And I was like, wow, really? And I think that's really who the folks have I follow. You know, these are the, the, the folks who have continued, you know, stayed engaged with them, you know, to kind of hear their stories of why they stayed. Because I think I often get that question, like, oh, Kishana, if the games are so awful, if you hate it so much, why do you stay? I'm like, because we've created something dope and amazing inside these spaces. And I want that story told. Yeah. But you got to listen to folks. You know, if people just like, well, listen and hear you'll be like, yes, sure. We experience racism. Yes. We experience sexism. Like, but that's not taking away from our overall experience and enjoyment, like inside these spaces. You know, and I also love like the story of like, you know, the allies, you know, there are some beautiful allies who are just like, you know, we, we ain't playing that racism stuff. You know, we're not, we're not, you know, we, we're not, we don't want to hear that anti-Semitic stuff. We don't want to, we're, you're not going to engage in like those kinds of conversations. Like we're not having that here. And it's really beautiful to just see how, you know, gamers of all colors and and genders and sexualities have like come together to just create these beautiful spaces of protection and i wouldn't have got that if i wasn't listening and like paying attention and hearing what they said thank you for asking that greg so if i may ask uh sometimes when folks are not as active in a community and they have good intentions and they want to enter that community and want to help sometimes they have to fight some skepticism uh there right How does somebody do that if they want to be an ally, want to be helpful, uh, want to listen, want to do those things? But they don't game or maybe they might not be, you know, they might be new to a game or they might not be as embedded in that culture. How should they navigate that? I think the first part is just going back. I think what Greg said was really like the core of the, the crux of the whole conversation, listening and paying attention, right? Because I think that's what folks have to do. Because there are some people also like who don't want to be saved. I'm like, you don't have to speak. You don't have to advocate. So we don't want that at all. You know, you have to pay attention to that. Um, and there are also some folks of like, where if you if you see something, say something, you know, like us. That's I, I said that the other day. And somebody said, oh, I can tell you were indoctrinated in the 9-11 wars. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was. But if you see something, say something, you know. But I think it's also just about developing relationships, right? You know, because, you know, a lot of times those awful, toxic moments, sometimes they they rarely happen, right? And so I don't want to get people like equipped, like they're going for war, you know, like I got to be ready if I'm going to hear the N-word, I got to be ready. You know, I don't I don't want folks to have like that energy. Um, that's why I think it's, you know, so important that we like develop relationship. If you got relationships with me, you develop relationships in the community, then you understand like, you know, the whole context of like the space and you just become one of us right um and so i want to make sure that, that that the people realize that it's not some kind of like you know where we have to like go and do training you know we have to like be ready you know for when the thing happens um and this might be sad to say but because some of those things are kind of so normalized in some of these communities like call of duty you know call of duty has a really toxic awful community you know it's so normalized in that space and, and then a lot of us we don't even interact and engage there you know the the technology and the tools also afford us the opportunity you know 
know, to be able to just be in private spaces and private chats. And so that's where so many of us are at. Like, we're like, well, we we don't have to interact and engage with that, right? Um, because I also know, like, it, it weighs on all of us. It weighs on all of our spirits and souls having to interact and engage with all of this awfulness, like, in the world on a daily basis. Um, and I think that if we just have, like, a relationships of a communal support with one another, then the things, that, that like, becomes our protective shield. You know, if, like, you know, we just kind of shield one another and love on each other, you know, and protect each other, then when those things happen, they don't weigh as heavy on our spirits and our souls. Does that make okay. sense? It I know does. that might sound kind of cheesy and hokey, but that's real talk. That's really yeah. real talk. No, love's more powerful than hate. I agree. That's right. Um, so uh, I want to back up for just a second. I first want to say, hey, there's still time to get in and act, ask Dr. A great question. You have your expertise for at least 10 more minutes. So make sure that um, you get those questions. Are we in. running out of time? Well, we, we'll, we'll go another hour. No, yeah, we have at least time. People have meetings to get to, Dr. Gray. Okay. Um, so if you have a question, make sure that you populate it in the chat and we'll make sure that uh, Colby asks it so we can get it on the air. But I want to back up just for a little bit because someone might have been coming to this conversation and saw that um, we were talking about uh, 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 technology and esports in the um, description, and they might not have known what that was. And they their their college or their institution might have esports, but they might not even know. I'll I'll be honest with you. I was like, so do schools have football teams and they play other schools football teams esports? No, it's just other games. Some schools do it intramurally. Like we're all learning about this. If you didn't already know about it, so um, there is an opportunity for not only student engagement but also recruitment and revenue building in esports. And um, oh boy, there'll be a follow-up article on mongooseresearch.com after this about that. Right. But what I wanna ask is about spaces and places like you said. So these spaces may already exist on your campus. They might, um, you might be here because you're getting information to build them. Would you consider Dr. Gray that having an institution or a university create that gaming environment or a league in a mural just in a quad to be safer because you know who's there so it might be a better introduction into gaming so if you go home and go uh, let me explain I'm, I'm i'm talking just as long as you do for my question but i want to make sure i okay. ask this correctly thank you mike yeah. um so if you go home and just go online you're in the universe and you don't know what's going to come at you you don't know how you're going to be hurt or how you're going to be attacked might it be a safer place or space on a college campus even virtually to have that happen. Yeah, yes. I pause a little bit, right? If you yeah. give me a one word answer on my <laughs> four minute question, I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> um, it depends. Okay. Uh, I say that a lot of our, uh, a lot of our campuses that came into esports differently, right? Like a lot of them, which I think is like one of the most beautiful ways is that it, it came up organically because these are, you know, like the Smash Bros, you know, like you've, you've got these groups who have been doing this like for decades, right? I remember being an undergrad, like in the early 2000s, you know, like we we had like land parties, like in, in like the Y2K land parties, you know, we we're like, nothing's going to happen. It's why we can still play, right? You know, so we would, so we've had these these communities and these spaces for a long time the institutions are just now paying attention to them and i think that's where a lot of my concern is is that when institutions are, you know are becoming involved they're focusing so much on that revenue and that profit you know margin because they're like we can make money here yeah you can and then they're so focused there and then they've lost the community aspect right you know they're just kind of you know i'm thinking about I, I love that you brought in like the sports analogy like like with football or whatever but a lot of them you know a lot of these spaces are just 
this, you know, they have tryouts and they're just bringing people together. Who's like the best in the best in, you know, whatever, you know, league of legends or, you know, Valorant, whatever the game is, you know, they're just bringing the best people together and that's cool. But if you don't have a sense of community, then you're just like, it, it looks like a job for many students. Now I do want to shout out, you know, Sky Kawaleo, you know, he's at the university of Hawaii and he did his, his dissertation white work looking at, you know, what the collegiate space like looked like. And he was like, you know, once if the, if, if it's like top down where the institution has their hand in it and like directed like the flow of it, then it's not a sense of community and it's not like it, it'll fizzle out. Right. But if for the ground up, you know, the ones who have been on the, those campuses, like forever, they build it, you know, they, they had the infrastructure, even when the institutions didn't give them any money or support, you know, they did their own fundraising. You know, those are the ones that I think are the healthiest and are like of the, the safest spaces as well. I and mean, when you have that sense of community, I think that that's what needs to be um, where the, where the focus, you know, really, really, really should be. If that, if that answers your question, but also I need to make sure to say a lot of, a lot of these spaces still aren't safe enough, like for a lot of women and non-binary folks and like queer folks, you know, there, there are some spaces that there just aren't, and that's not, that's not across the board, you know, but I think that we really have to like pay attention. I remember, I remember doing like the Gamergate era where a lot of the folks, you know, I went to like a Smash Brothers tournament and like these Smash Bros were like, you know, kind of espousing like a lot of like the Gamergate rhetoric, you know, like, you you know, talking about like women as like space invaders, like taking over our space and stuff. And, and I was like, and that's where like a lot of, you know, folks, you know, were like we're pushing to have like their own women in gaming spaces, right? I'm like, okay, well, y'all don't want us there. That's fine. We're cool. We're going over here, you know? So I would love to say yes, that th those spaces are for the most part like safe. Um, but I think it also like depends on, on where they are. But I think a lot of people who are like coaches and administrators pay attention, you know, to the going ons of, of like the, uh, of like a lot of these spaces just to make sure that they are safe spaces like for everybody. Cause I think this could really be one of those places of where you see unity and diversity and you see folks coming together, you know, along the lines of gaming, you know, where we're all here, like on one accord, it could really be beautiful, but sometimes we got to be intentional about creating those spaces too. So we've talked a lot about students when we, when we mentioned inclusivity and belonging and community, how is there a way to do that with staff as well? Uh, absolutely. And I think a lot of them staff gets like left out, but you know, like the staff are, are some folks, you know, they're like the backbones of the, of the institutions. You know, these are the ones with all the institutional knowledge and memory. And I think that they should be like a part and they should be on board, you know, not the ones that are just creating the flyers for you, not the ones that are just like organizing like a lot of the events, right? Because that's like where, where a lot of times they get rooted in, but you know, I'm very, I'm very, you know, intentional about making sure we like incorporate like staff in like meaningful ways. You know, some of the pop-up gaming labs that I have, you know, are in those spaces, like, you know, the, so the student support office, you know, the MLK center, you know, to make sure that the staff of those places, you know, are, are involved because those are the folks who are also the most connected to students. Faculty aren't like, let's be real, you know, faculty are not, you know, we teach our classes and then we leave campus, right. You know, but staff are the ones that are there day in and day out, you know, so if a lot of this organizing and planning is happening without the staff, then you've lost already. So we absolutely have to make sure that those folks are involved. If I was running a office, uh, I don't know, international student programs, let's just say, would it make sense for me to host maybe even like a gaming day or gaming hours where people can just drop in and, you know, use yeah, an Xbox should. One or whatever it might be? 
You absolutely should, because I think but, because remember what you said earlier, you know, the gaming can draw them in. That's like the recruiting right. tool. We can get them. But then all the amazing stuff that your office provides and, and can offer, that's what's going to keep them there. That's what's going to keep them coming back. If they feel like that they are, are valuable inside your space and they feel valuable on like, the campus and then they'll stay like this is really a part of like the, rec- you know, retention and recruitment, matriculation and graduation. All of these are are like part of that conversation. But remember, the gaming can bring them in. And then we we just we have the opportunities like to keep them there absolutely like, you got to give your gamer handle then so that you can be invited yeah in. holy toledo mike on xbox one really there you go really oh my gosh what are you yeah. playing these days what are you, what are you uh playing? so uh i can only play sports games it's sort of psychological when my character dies it feels weird um so i can only play and they don't let you do that in that makes a ton of sense if you know mike yeah um so i love uh nba 2k uh, particularly my Detroit Pistons. Isn't that 22 years old? Well, NBA 2K23. Okay. Yes. Oh, okay. Cade Cunningham. <laughs> Drop your gamer handle in the chat. Let's get everyone connected I love it. Here. Jen says this is on brand for you, Mike. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Uh, Dr. Gray, this was an amazing uh, uh, yes. conversation. Um, uh, uh, we want, we're going to put in the chat um, ways to connect with uh, Dr. Gray um, outside of this conversation, of course, if you have follow-up questions with Dr. Gray, just want to get connection um, connection with her and um, follow um, what she's doing in her career, because I think it's great. Get a hold of the book. It's really fascinating. Yes. It's um, uh, it's 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 a long read. I'll tell you that yes. much. You're not going to fly through it, Heavy, but a lot of great too. information. So much research. So much that. research. So, um, congratulations uh, on that. Anything you want to um, give our audience as a takeaway to today's conversation? You have um, in your audience a bunch of higher ed staffers doing really good work with students, prospective students and alumni. Um, anything you want to say as a takeaway to them on this conversation? No, this was amazing. I learned so much from them. Thank you all for engaging in the chat. You know, I'm, I'm going to be bringing like a lot of these things, like, you know, back to even to my campus, like uh, of we're engaged because you are you are the folks, you know, who are, you know, like on the, the focus of all this. So thank you all for the things that you are doing for our students on our campuses. Thank you so much. Awesome. Colby, thanks for uh, asking the questions and producing today. Today's broadcast, of course, brought to you by Mongoose, makers of Higher Ed's premier engagement platform, which is Cadence. And um, Dr. Gray, once again, from Mike and I both, uh, yes. thank you once again. Um, join us in um, our next episode, which will not be in two weeks. It will Mike. not be. Yeah, there's a little uh, holiday season coming up. So we will skip um, November 22nd. More like Thanksgiving because it's taking our episode away. But uh, we will be back on December 6th with uh, Scott Jassick from Inside Higher Ed. We're going to talk about the top 10 issues challenging higher education in 2023. I promise you there'll be more than 10. Probably. Because we, yeah. Okay. Um, everyone, thanks so much for being here today and uh, joining us in this conversation. Once again, thanks again to Dr. Gray for joining us. Uh, everyone have a great day. Get out there and vote.